It's Wednesday, August 16th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today for Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker. Happy Wednesday. Thank you. More retail. We're, we're past the peak of earnings palooza, but we do have some more retail earnings. Yes. And we'll dip re- retail reports late, usually. Why is that? Because uh, they get the January month in to sort of. Um, because a lot of the sales occur after Christmas. Uh, so to get a, a better uh, you know, picture of the whole quarter, you need to include January along with December. So it's not that retailers as a group are divas and they're like, we just want the spotlight on us? That too. Okay. We'll dip into the full mailbag too, but let's start with Target. Uh, second quarter. Second quarter profits look good, and probably more importantly for Target, same store sales on the rise, and that comes after four straight quarters of falling comps. So if you're if you're a Target shareholder, you got to be happy about that. Yeah, it's better. Uh, the same store sales are as close to flat uh, in the positive category as you can get, really. Uh, up 1.3% for the quarter, and the guidance is around uh, 1% flat, plus or minus 1% going forward. So, not even really keeping up with the pace of inflation. Uh, so, it, it's better, better than a negative number, uh, but this is what passes for good news in, uh, in retail these days. Do you think Target might be sandbagging just slightly? Because if the most important time of the year for retailers like Target is the holidays at the end of the year, the second most important time is back to school, and that's the current quarter. And I, whether they think they're going to beat it or not, it is absolutely in Target's interest and every retailer's interest to just sandbag for the current quarter. Well, it's generally a good, good way to go about giving your news to be on the cautious side, so that when you beat, uh, people are happy rather than disappoint. Uh, keep shareholders a little bit happier when you know what uh, you're going to do, and then uh, outperform it to some degree. The company really hasn't grown its earnings at all, you know, over the last decade. So, uh, I, caution is, uh, I think, a good a good path for them to take. Do you think, in hindsight, the decision to sell the pharmacy business to CVS was a mistake? Because at the time, it was seen, among other things, as well, they're getting an infusion of, of cash, obviously, from CVS Health. And two, it enables them to focus more on their bread and butter. And Brian Cornell, the CEO, one of the things he talked about at the time was this is going to enable us to focus on, among other things, clothing. Yeah, well, I think that there is a lot of sense in maintaining focus for something that has had as many operational problems as Target has had. Uh, to have one fewer headache and to get a cash infusion on the way, uh, which has allowed them to buy back some shares, and and that's pretty much the the story for Target, more or less over the last decade is. A Roughly the same amount of EBITDA of earnings. If you go back 2008, you know, not a great year on the whole. Net income was 2.8 billion over the last 12 months. 2.7 billion this is a decade later in a better economy. So really, that's that's the short story. And the longer version is that they have taken down their share count from 
about 850 million to about 560. So they've been buying back shares all along the way rather than just trying to, or, or I'm sure they were trying to grow sales. Of course, um, spinning off the pharmacy business uh, impacts that equation. Uh, but really, the, what they've done is had a roughly stable business and bought back shares with with a lot of the money. All right, let's move on to. And by the way, shares of Target up about three percent. So there there is some optimism about the latest results and certainly their cautious guidance for the rest of the year. But let's move on to Urban Outfitters. They're Second quarter profits and overall sales came in higher than expected. Their, their comps were down five percent. So the fact that at one point this morning shares of Urban Outfitters were up twenty three percent, it settled down a little bit. Now it's up about seventeen percent. That still seems amazingly high for a retailer that has comps that are going in the wrong direction. Right. So, the, the majority of the business is going in the wrong direction. That is, the existing U.S. stores. Now, that's a problem. And that problem has been reflected in the share price, which has gone down from, I don't know, around 50 to 16 going into today. And th- that's not all just this year. This has been an ongoing story for a while. Uh, but it's uh, got the, the bright you know, the bright side is uh, European uh, stores are doing better. They have positive comps, in fact, reasonably strong positive comps. And the wholesale business is is doing better, and the direct consumer um, online is doing better. So, a little bit of bright news out there, but uh, they've got a lot of stores, and they are not really. They, they've admitted they were. They've basically taken. Urban Outfitters and Anthropology, as far as they're going to go, they're not really growing in the U.S. There's a lot of room outside of the U.S. to grow. Uh, in fact, they're growing. They are growing. One store. Are you familiar with Bethesda, Maryland, at all? I, I, yes. My hometown. <laughs> that's not your hometown. That's, well, where, that's you, where I live. Now. It's where you it's live. Not now. my hometown. It's yeah. my children's hometown. I'm so, familiar with Bethesda. Yes. You familiar with the Barnes and Noble there? No. There's, there is, if you can believe it, a Barnes and Noble there, although it's going out of business. And so it's a huge Barnes and Noble sized Barnes and Noble, you know, two, three floors, and, uh, and uh, Anthropology and Company is taking it over. So the Anthropology, one of the brands for Urban Outfitters. And then they're going to have sort of all the eclectic things that Urban Outfitters does under this one roof Anthropology, uh, Beholden, the, the, the furniture. A store and uh, and some dining, and and so that is, it's like a mini department store. It's not that mini. I mean, it's it's a department store of, but not not with the breadth of a Target. By but it's going to be all Urban Outfitter owned property. So there'll be an Urban Outfitters on one section. There'll be an Anthropology in another. That sort of thing. Uh, and pizza because they bought that pizza restaurant. That tree, right? Um, it's it's going to be. Uh, there's going to be clothing, accessories. Um, you know, anthropology is is basically it. I don't know if there's going to be an Urban Outfitters within it, but there's going to be the the cafe, which is branded under Terrain rather than Vetri, because that's another thing you got to think about. Um, but this is one of the things they're trying. They've done it 
in one or two other places, and I guess this is uh, something to try. Here's something else they can try, and uh, let me pull uh, a, a quote from one analyst who, uh, and and this I think zeroes in on a particular challenge for urban outfitters, and goes towards something that you had said about how well they've they've grown in the U.S. All they're going to grow, um, and one analyst said. Urban Outfitters collections look like an art installation rather than saleable merchandise. Why don't they just try and focus on actually selling clothing? Why don't they actually do that instead of creating the experience that they've created? It's loud in there, too. It's really loud in there. Yeah. Well, we're not the target uh, audience, are we? We're not, but again, if they had... I don't know. I feel... Every apparel retailer that we've talked about in the now seven years that we've been doing this show, every single one of them has had at least a six-month stretch of time when they were doing really well. American Eagle, Abercrombie & Fitch, take your pick across the board. They've all had short periods of time where they were doing really, really well in terms of we've got the merchandise that young people want to buy and we're doing a good job of managing our inventory and urban outfitters seems completely uninterested in attempting that. Yeah, well that would be too simple. It's better to <laughs> better to try to run some restaurants and slide some restaurants into your establishments or not. I think they're still trying to figure that uh, that out, but they have so anthropology has done pretty well over the years, um, and it is actually now bigger um, by about 10% in terms of sales than, than Urban Outfitters. And Free People is the third uh, brand out there, and that is still growing. Urban Outfitters itself is contracting. Uh, we may have seen, I'm, I'm sure we've seen the best days for Urban Outfitters, uh, but it's a concept that they can take internationally, and maybe you know that is, that is what they're not really focused on in terms of the size of the business. It's only about ten percent of their sales, but that's the better opportunity than opening any more of these things in the U.S. Our email address is radio at fool dot com from Stephen Coe, uh, who uh, and I'm going to summarize Stephen's email because it's it's uh, lengthy, but it, there's a lot of good information. But Essentially, it was Stephen's experience uh, first trying to invest in REITs, real estate investment trusts, and that did not work out well. And so then he started clicking around fool.com and found that we've got Motley Fool Germany and Motley Fool Australia and Singapore. And this led him to a series of ETFs. And he sent an, e- uh, an email specifically for you, by the way, saying, I wanted to get uh, Bill's opinion on using multiple ETFs. To diversify even further, or is it a little redundant to own multiple ETFs? P.S. I'm hoping you and Bill Barker can answer this and then go on a random tangent. Pretty safe bet on Stephen's part that we can answer it. Uh, no, I thought on the random tangent, but it's you're, up to, it, you're moving right to the tangent. That's because what I'm, would you like to talk about? <laughs> um, we could talk Elvis Presley in a little bit because it is the 40th anniversary of uh, of. The death of I don't know if that even counts as a tangent because it's not really related to what we were just talking about. Well, then why don't you try and answer the question? Really, it's addressed to you. <laughs> Again, I wanted to get your and hopefully Bill's opinion on using your. See, and he's just hoping for something from me, but he's kind of demanding oh, okay. a response from you. So, 
Uh, I feel like diversification is a little bit like hydration. Too much is is not good for you. <laughs> so, you know, it's the whole thing. Like at some point, you're just drinking too much water. Just at some point, you just don't need the diversification. So, I mean, what point is that? Uh, well, every person needs to figure it out for themselves. But, yeah, well, but as we as we have said before, if you're invested in if you have a chunk of your portfolio in a simple S&P 500 index fund, there's your diversification right there. You've got pieces of 500 large companies in the United States. Yeah. Uh, so, there are a couple things mentioned in here. The, uh, two of the Vanguard uh, REIT ETFs, both the US and the uh, ex-US one, VNQ and VNQI are the ones that are mentioned here. And, and it's been a good run for both of those as real estate has rebounded uh, after 2007, 2008. It's had uh, you know seven, eight, sorry, nine years of, of positive return since then, and each of them. Um, but I think that uh, Vanguard ETFs are a great way to go. The problem with ETFs uh, and getting into sector specific ones is only if you're doing it because. Uh, you think it's the hot thing, you know, and then when the heat goes away, then you look for the next hot thing. So fast, uh, so money that is chasing what has already worked and seems to still be working. This is, in general, a great problem for investors. The problem for investors is not being too diversified. The problem for investors is chasing the hot sector, and then. Chasing the next hot sector, selling in and out of things at the wrong time. If you're going to spend five, 10, 15, 20 years uh, in a REIT ETF that is managed by Vanguard, uh, you're going to do well. You're going to you're going to keep your costs low, and you're going to be in, invested in something which has good historical returns and provides some diversification. That is the REIT sector outside of the S and P 500. Um, but you know, if you've already got uh, you know numerous uh, full market uh, you know ETFs, then this will give you a little bit more concentration uh, in in the REIT space. Uh, but you already you do already own uh, real estate through the, the S and P five hundred. We talk Vanguard, of course. That always brings I don't to know, mind. How are you going to tie Elvis into that answer? Oh, I'm getting there. Don't worry. Okay, um, I'm listening. Uh, Vanguard, of course, always brings to mind John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. Like you, a proud son of Pennsylvania. I, I uh, was his daughter. I once talked to him about his daughter, who was, I think, the same year as me at a, a um, rival school nearby. She was at like one of the all-girls schools. Did he take a swing at you? No, it was over the phone. Oh. So it would, it would probably wanted to. He's I a did. spry guy. John Bogle is 88 years old, and I'm. I think there's a decent chance he's going to outlive both of us. <laughs> have you met? Just you, get a get a new heart again if he needs one. Have you met, met Bogle in person before? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, but uh, not in a long time. What were the circumstances? I think I was at an investor conference in Philadelphia where. Tom and David Gardner were uh, were speaking. I think they were maybe opening it, and Bogle was closing it, or vice versa. And, and they were sort of co-headlining. 
So this was like 98 or 99. That was the one time I met Bogle. I was with David and Tom. We were in Los Angeles, uh, and it was the Los Angeles Times was having an investment conference. Same situation where uh, they were one set of keynote speakers, Bogle was another keynote speaker, and literally he was just sort of passed one another in the hallway, and he recognized them and, and, and stopped. And uh, for someone who's much older than me and much smaller than me, I just thought, boy, that guy's got a hell of a grip. <laughs> just, just a strong, strong dude. Um, I don't really have a, a graceful way to uh, to loop in Elvis here, but I did notice right before we started taping, today's the 40th anniversary of Elvis Presley dying. You've been to Graceland. I have been to Graceland. You've not been. I've not. I I hear. What's for, wrong with you? Well, I was. That's going to be my question. What I've heard from some people that um, it's one of those must-visit places, and I have to. I, I I don't feel like I can just go to Memphis with that being the sole purpose of my trip. I feel like if I was no. if I was going to Memphis for other reasons, I'd barbecue, like, <laughs> the Drake Hotel. Okay, what is the Drake Hotel not in Chicago anymore? Um, I, maybe I'm getting it wrong. It's it's the hotel in Memphis where they have these ducks that go on parade at like uh, four o'clock every day across the street and get something to eat and then come back and traffic stops and they're trained ducks. Yeah. In Memphis. Yes, it is the big thing to see uh, after Graceland and just uh, the music you know, Memphis scene. Memphis Blue, the music scene and and the the barbecue scene. So here's here's a little thing I just learned about uh, Bruce Springsteen as it relates to Elvis. It's the Peabody Hotel. I'm I'm coming up with Drake because that's a type of duck. Okay, uh, I'm just misrepresenting Memphis entirely, which probably has 75 things about which it is more proud than ducks. Yeah, we're probably going to get an email from someone in Memphis who says, "Here's why you want to come to Memphis." Yeah, address and, it to Chris. And the ducks are like 19th on that list. I'm just encouraging him to go to Memphis. I'm the one who went there. Uh, and also, uh, you go to um, uh, you, you follow the whole uh, route down and Mississippi. There's a, a great place uh, just outside of Memphis. I'm going to come up with a name while you're going into your tangent. So I just learned about uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, the song "Fire" uh, that he wrote. Uh, just learned that he wrote that song for Elvis Presley. And sent it to Elvis, and um, uh, I think Elvis never got it. I think he, I th- what I had heard was he he wrote it um, just before Elvis died, uh, which means that he wrote it. Uh, I don't know, forty years and a few days ago. And if you think about it, that's a that's a, an Elvis sounding tune as far as Springsteen goes. So you go to the Hollywood, I believe, um, outside of Memphis, and that's. Uh, Noted, as are many other things, in the uh, Mark Cohn song, Walking in Memphis, if you've ever wondered. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good song. They talk about the jungle. He talks about the jungle room, which is uh, at Graceland. There's a pretty little thing waiting for the king down in the jungle room. That's right. And so, you know, the experience, if you are, like myself, not a fan of Elvis, but he never played a major role in your life. That's that's where I am. Yeah. Uh, the, to go to to Graceland and find people like you know weeping at the, at the eternal flame and all that, uh, that's you know a little a little thing that that stays with you. That uh, he he had that much effect on so many people's lives. Yeah, in a in a pretty short amount of time. 
Yeah, he died at 42, unfortunately. Which leads to this comment from uh, longtime listener Tom Smith. Can you guys start a weekly podcast with just Chris and Bill Barker? Just start up the recorder and stop it after 30 minutes. No editing, just publish it. Podcast gold. Um, first of all, uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, second of all, we're not going to do that. But uh, we, we, we do have a little something that we're kicking around. I'll get to it in a second. Um, I just love the no editing, just publish it. That describes most episodes of Market Foolery. No editing, just publish it. Yeah, I, I I thought about going into that, but it seemed like it would uh, for me to say, look, there's no editing is unfair to um, you know Dan Boyd and others who work on the show and do things on the production side and and make it sound like nothing is being done. But but what what is not being done is really editing out, as people really know, editing out all the worthless parts. Yeah. is not done. Yeah, if you've ever listened to an episode with Bill today, Barker, for instance. Yeah, you you know that uh, the worthless parts are always included, which is why we get you know. Uh, why don't you edit all the worthless parts out? Because we're Motley. Because we're not Bloomberg. Because we're just we're you know Motley. Do Motley means you know a bunch of different things. Right, and in this case, some of the different things that we include on in this podcast are worthless. <laughs> How else are we going to differentiate ourselves from the Bloombergs of the world? There's lots of worthless stuff out there. What are you talking about? So here's what we are going to do. Um, we we are going to have a bonus episode of Market Foolery at some point in the next month or so, and uh, it's not going to interfere with the normal flow, the normal Monday to through Thursday flow. We're going to publish this probably on the weekend sometime. Um, we're going to get uh, one of our colleagues who we're not going to name. But I will simply say that uh, this colleague to be named later. Colleague to be named later. Colleague who has never appeared on Market Foolery before in our seven-year history. Is this the the colleague that I was? Uh, this is mentioning. This is. So we're, we're, has he signed on? He or she? <laughs> not to give anybody any clues about this unknown person. Uh, this person's on board. All right. So um, so, but we're going to need a little help, which is um, we'll we'll come up with our own tangential topics. But it would be great if um, if we could get some questions that you'd like to hear us kick around, and if they have zero connection to business whatsoever, that's fine. That's that's probably all the better. That go that will go to the motliness of the episode, um, and just just to get people started, just in terms of a frame of thinking. Uh, there's a, a question that we might, I don't think we've ever talked about on this show before, but it's a question that I think has been batted around the Fool Funds team for a number of years, and that is, who would win a fight between a tiger and a shark? Do you want to cover that now? Um, no, we don't have to cover that now. But that's that's that is a debate we've uh, engaged in on a few different occasions. I think that what people should be thinking about maybe this is in terms of what I think. Uh, on our tangents, what we're sort of doing is if you have, if you've watched the movie Diner lately, it's it should just be that that sort of level of uh, whatever the topics are that they're talking about. Great movie, great movie, and a lot of the scenes in the diner are a lot of the dialogue in that movie uh, in the diner is improvised. Um, and it's it's four guys in their twenties. They're sort of figuring, trying to figure out what adult life is supposed to be. It is set in 1959 in Baltimore. Uh, one one of the um, great plot lines is uh, Steve Gutenberg, young Steve Gutenberg. They're all young in the movie. Steve Gutenberg is engaged to be married, and he is such a diehard Baltimore Colts fan that he is making his fiance 
pass a test about the Baltimore Colts. And if she does not pass the test, he says he will not marry her. And that's one of the plot lines in the movie. So that's the, the, the gathering of the friends is because of the impending nuptials. Right. To the degree that there is any plot in the movie. And, and there's a great Vanity Fair, I think, article about this some years back, which talks about the way in which Diner changed um, storytelling and movie making and TV shows, and that it was the, the first sort of movie that was about nothing, and uh, that it was hard to sell, because it, people, it, it's sort of just a timepiece, and it's a, about the way guys talk to each other. Uh, and and it's not really about any more than that. And the the uh, fiance is never seen in the movie because she's literally never seen. Um, she's not. No. Wait a minute. I'm, now I'm thinking because I've seen this movie a bunch of times. No, she's not because no. you hear her voice. They they are in um, they're in the basement and they're on one side of the basement when she's taking the test about the Baltimore Colts, so you hear her voice. But, you know, you're right. You yeah. never see her. Not even, well, I've, I don't want to spoil anything, but, yeah, you never see her. And one of the other things that, that happens in the movie and that we could certainly talk about because we talk about this, they stop, they, at one point, they stop for coffee on their way to getting coffee. <laughs> yes. And there's a little bit about that. There are, there are a lot of little bits because it, it's not about, it's not really about this guy getting married. That's sort of the culmination of the movie but as you don't even see the bride so it, it's not it's not really about anything and which is I think what this show that you're talking about is also about it's going to be the diner of market foolery episodes is what you're yeah. saying we'll see but if we could uh, you know if you want to kick off a little questions to, to help get us moving in the right directions please email us marketfoolery at fool.com if you've got strong feelings about tiger versus shark, which yeah, which you have a strong feeling. About I do. That. It's shark all the way. It's not shark all the way. Well, you know, maybe we'll talk about that <laughs> later. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Forty. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 